Welcome to A Frank Conversation with the Downtown Podcast and our very first guest for this uh, new uh, initiative that we're launching is uh, Simon Danchuk. Simon is the former MP for Rochdale. He's uh, now a business consultant and has been very recently appointed the chairman of Downtown London in Business. So welcome, Simon. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, great to see you. Good to see you, Obviously, the first thing I'm going to ask you is how you got into politics, because, you know, political careers um, always strikes me as something, a strange profession for people (laughs) to select. Uh, And I can say that as somebody who once did it themselves. So what was your motivation? Yeah, I I don't come from a traditional uh, political family, as many people do, as you and I know, uh, who come into politics. so, but I got at a very young age into reading, bizarrely, into reading George Orwell. And so by the age of 16, I'd read everything George Orwell had ever written. My grandmother from Burnley uh, had lent me a copy of Animal Farm, and that's what got me into George Orwell. Read it all, and that's what got me interested in politics. And from the age of about being 15 then, I wanted to become a Member of Parliament. Yeah. And that's what set me on the track, actually. It's interesting that, isn't it? Yeah. Because... One of my great motivations, although I would always credit my dad, who was big into trade union movement, with me being sort of interested in, in politics, the thing that tipped me over the edge was Alan Bleasdale's series of plays, Boys from the Black Stuff, and recently I was reading Andy Burnham. That was his motivation. Oh, that's interesting. So it's funny that, all that. Yeah. you know, culture, in a sense... Yeah. Is, has impacted and, and motivated you yeah. and others, I guess many others, to, to get into politics. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, and um, from a, my mother brought me and my brother up, so I'm from a one-parent family, exper- experienced poverty really as a child and didn't have a great upbringing. I mean, not re- not re- not a really poor upbringing, but nevertheless that played a part in uh, played a part as well. And being brought up in the 80s, Quite a political time, weren't it? You know, you talk about Bleasdale and all yeah. that. I remember all that in Yossi U, Yossi U's were it and stuff, <laughs> yeah, dragging yeah. his kids around. Yeah, give us a job <laughs> and all that. Fascinating stuff to yeah. reflect on. Uh, but it did sort of, I think it did politicise a generation in some respects. I've never really given it too much thought until now, but I was certainly part of that. Mm. And, and you look back at that 80s period, and I think we felt then, um, because I... You know, that was my sort of informative years as well. The politics was very polarised. So you had Margaret Thatcher on one side. In the early 80s, you had Fussy, you know, Michael Fuss, yeah. who was perceived as quite left-wing. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, he looked like a bloody liberal compared to what we've got going on in the Labour Party now. But equally, you could you could argue that the Thatcher was probably more of a one-nation Tory than anything we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, I think, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, on reflection, she wasn't a, a really, on reflection, she wasn't that right wing really, but at the time <laughs> we certainly thought she was. And there was quite a, dark, it felt like there was a dichotomy in politics, like you say, a left or a right. I remember seeing Arthur Scargill speak at Burnley Miners Club in the mid-80s, in the Miners strike. I saw Michael Foote speak in Burnley at the Socialist Club. Uh, and, you know, so I were our picking up all of this sort of politics that was going on, very different, radically different from what we've got now. It does feel like 
that we've got a whole variety of different political parties to choose from, whereas then it was just us and them. Mm. And of course, then you threw into the mix the, the, the SDP, but that sort of crashed and burned relatively quickly, didn't yeah. it? Not, not as quickly as the independence <laughs> we've had recently, but, but, uh, but nevertheless didn't last that long. Didn't really make a mark, did they? Didn't leave no. a mark. No. And, and so oh, I can understand and appreciate why you'd say, well, you know, Labour Party was sort of the natural home because obviously your background lent yeah. itself to that. Where you were, you know, Lancashire uh, is predominantly Labour as well. But... Where would you have put yourself in the Labour Party in the 80s and positionally? Would you have been more to the sort of soft, Neil Kinnock type of politics? Is that where you were? You know, I, I did what you often do when you're young. I was more on the left, there's no doubt about it, than what I am now. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so I had, you know, sort of rose-tinted spectacles in terms of what I thought could be achieved yeah. in society. Uh, I left school at 16, worked in a factory, got involved in the trade union movement uh, and thought that we could, you know, uh, achieve some sort of socialist utopia. But uh, I think as you get older, most people uh, generally come to a realisation that, you know, that that's just not what, <laughs> what life is really about, you know. Uh, but that's where I started off. Yeah. Yeah. So would you have been a Benite then? Probably were. I can't remember who I really uh, supported. I mean, like I say, I you know, went to see foot speaker. Scargle speak. I remember going to the Hacienda actually and seeing the, the Redskins during the 80s minus strike. Yeah, you know, Tony Wilson <laughs> stage. But uh, so I were definitely on the left politically. Yeah. And so we'll fast forward. You know, you've gone through a period where you've come out of your factory work, obviously. You set up a consultancy business, Vision 21, I think. That's where you and I first met, wasn't it? When you yeah. were doing that research work. Over in Manchester with people like Anne McNamara and Ruth Turner. Yeah. Ruth ended up as chief of staff to Tony Blair. So she, she outdid both of us, mate. She yeah. went on to bigger and better things. Yeah, um, and then you end up having the opportunity of becoming a member of parliament. Yeah. Um, so a challenging constituency, I would describe Rochdale as. How did that come about? Yeah, and, you know, I think we probably met, actually, before, even before Vision 21 and that, that whole uh, that, that whole development, uh, because I'd been a councillor on Blackburn cool. when it were a district yeah. council yeah. Uh, from the age of 27, yeah. and you were on Lancashire County Council, yes. uh, yeah. which was the, the higher tier of government in, in, in Lancashire at that yeah. time. So I think as paths probably crossed there yeah, at some yeah. stage, I would have thought. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd uh, spent a bit of time doing local government, being a councillor for eight years, from my 20s into my 30s, then went and did business. And I thought to myself, if I don't stand for parliament, and as, a, as I've mentioned, it had been an ambition from, from being a teenager, uh, if I don't do it soon, I won't do it at all. And so uh, having been back in business for quite some time, I then sought out a seat that I thought I could fight. And uh, rightly or wrongly, I thought the best approach would be to go for a seat where they spoke my language, as in, you know, Lancastrian. <laughs> so I, I didn't think I'd cut, cut mus much mustard on Merseyside trying to find, find a safe Labour seat. So I thought Rochdale did have some appeal, but you're right, it was quite a tough one. Lorna Fitzsimons had lost it 
in 2005 general election to the Lib Dems. Uh, and so I uh, got selected to try and win it back. Now, before we talk about you subsequently winning that election and getting into Parliament, um, I want you to talk us through a famous visit that you had during the campaign from the then Prime Minister, Gordon Brown. Uh, and I'm sure anybody who has got a scintillant of interest in politics will remember this day particularly well. And, and you're the only person, really, that's ever, you know, outside being in the pub and everything else that's really asked about what, I, from my perspective, what happened, you know. But uh, it would, you know, every, if you're in politics, getting a, your, you know, a prime minister of your political party to come and do a visit to try and get you elected to parliament. I mean, that is, you know, something, you know, the vast majority of politicos would want. And so we had uh, Gordon Brown lined up to visit Rochdale as part of the campaign. And literally he was coming in in April, just weeks before general election day. And I was over the moon that he was coming in and helping us hopefully take this seat back for Labour. And so he arrived and it went well. It had all been the choreography of these things, as you know, is, is quite uh, detailed. Uh, and and, uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, a woman called, who we now know as Gillian Duffy, <laughs> came on the scene and started heckling. And uh, myself and a colleague, Matt Baker, went over and had a conversation, uh, calmed her down in many respects. Uh, but then uh, I started showing Gordon to his car for him to leave. Everything was fine. Then Sue Nye, his uh, assistant, uh, Gordon's assistant, shouted over, there's a lady here that would like to meet you, Gordon, uh, Prime Minister. And I'm thinking, she's just engaged the, the older lady, Mrs. Duffy, <laughs> who have just managed to calm down. And the rest is history, really. I mean, uh, what people don't know is that straight after uh, Gordon leaving and then making the remarks that he did in the car... Well, it just reminds us what he actually... Oh, who put me in front of that bigoted woman or something. Bigot, yeah, it was and the bigot I, word, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Bit him on the arse. Yeah, yeah. and he, because he, she had said to him, where uh, all these, she in in the challenge, in, in the exchange with Gordon, uh, Mrs Duffy had said, where are all these Eastern Europeans flocking from? And I think <laughs> he thought she'd sworn. Uh, and the obvious answer to the question, nevertheless, is, well, they're all coming from Eastern Europe, actually. But never, anyway, uh, but straight after the visit, I went to visit the local prison uh, on a tour. And so uh, I were oblivious to the fact that this had happened. It'd been picked up on tape and everything was unfolding because for two hours I was on this uh, prison visit uh, and you've got to leave your mobile phone in the glove compartment of your car while you go around meeting all the prison officers and shaking hands. It's the middle of an election campaign. And I come out two hours later and there's a volunteer from the campaign at the gates. And I said, what, what are you doing here, uh, Amy? And she says, oh, you need to ring Labour Regional Office. <laughs> there's been a problem, you know. So anyway, I get to my car and I pick up the mobile phone and I've 30-odd missed, uh, missed messages. So, and I start listening to these and it dawns on me exactly what's happened, you know. And I've spent literally three years campaigning to win this seat. I've been selected in 2007. Uh, and just within, you know, within days of the general election, I've had the Prime Minister come in and almost scupper my chances. <laughs> I, I drove to the local co-op in Rochdale and I'd given up smoking, as you do as a parliamentary candidate, but I, 
I quickly bought 20 more for a light and, <laughs> and sat there having a, having a cigarette listening to all these messages. But, uh, we managed to uh, recover the situation, actually. The good thing is that John Prescott, credit to him, was due to visit the constituency the day after, and he did do. But instead of doing a walk around, which wasn't best, uh, was best avoided, he rallied the troops, the party members in Rochdale, and uh, we went on campaigning and, uh, and won it by an 800 majority to get off Lib Dems. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, the other side of that coin in terms of the national impact that they had, um, Brown famously got back in his car and went and personally apologised to Mrs Duffy. Do you think in hindsight that was a clever thing to do? Do you think I'm that's sure. the sort of thing Peter Mandelson or Alistair Campbell would have been advising? That is a good question, actually. I don't think it did him any good mm. because uh, because she weren't having any of it, was she? And, uh, and so the better advice would have been for him to stay away. But uh, I, I do see it as an opportunity. I'm a great believer in turning a negative into a positive. And what I did manage to do with Gillian is, is eventually recruit her to the Labour Party. And I also got her, because the election, I think, was in May, uh, by August, I'd got uh, to open my constituency parliamentary office uh, and got a plaque on the wall and everything else opened by Gillian Duffy. And, and we got that on News at 10 as the last story. It's one of those <laughs> funny stories yeah, that you yeah. finish the news with. Uh, so all turned well with Gillian, but uh, she's quite a character. And uh, I thought I don't think Gordon ever really got the measure of her. Really. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So you go to Parliament, you've been dreaming of... A parliamentary career from a teenager and you walk through those gates of Westminster and it's a intimidating place isn't it and particularly I think intimidating for guys and girls with the same sort of backgrounds as you and I I remember when I first went in there it was like the first day at a university or something you know it was like bloody hell what am I walking into here very formal quite stuffy very traditional, I would say archaic. Uh, nonetheless, if you're going to operate in that environment, you've got to operate in that environment. You ain't changing the way Parliament works. Knowing you as I do, I would imagine that was quite a frustration for you, for, You know, particularly when you want to go in there and change the world. Yeah, I think your analysis is exactly right, and uh, and I'm not overly extrovert either, and I'm not a big public speaker in actual fact, which you know I, I do quite a bit of public speaking, but I'm not a natural. You you're a natural, Frank, I know that, but but I'm not, and uh, and also you're exactly right. The whole setting in terms of Parliament uh, is quite challenging for somebody like me. So I did struggle to come to terms with Parliament and how it worked. I'd been in business before going in there. And I found it quite frustrating in terms of processes and how the whole place worked. Uh, and then as well, uh, my mother died six weeks into me becoming, uh, getting elected to Parliament. Uh, she died of cancer and that were, and she was quite young, actually. Uh, and so that were a bit of a shock as well. So I really struggled to find my feet. Uh, all that combined with the fact that you're absolutely elated that you've overturned a Liberal seat into a Labour seat, uh, some of it goes to your head. You know, I think people who deny that are not telling the full truth. You know, you're absolutely amazed at the fact that you are now a member of parliament. 
what you have to say carries more weight uh, than it did before. But at the same time, you're living away from home uh, a good proportion of the week. You've all these other challenges as well. I never really took to it very easily, actually. That's the reality of it. And also, when you were selected in 2007, you're not only dreaming about going as an MP, you're going as an MP for the party of government. Because in 2007, the safe money for an election would have been another Labour government, wouldn't it? Yeah. You've gone and, and all of a sudden you find yourself in opposition, yeah. which is never a good place to be in politics. In my no, experience. no, that's right. And then to add insult to injury, we choose uh, Ed Miliband to lead the party, <laughs> which is a, <laughs> another conversation in its own right. Uh, so that would doubly difficult. But uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, I didn't mind being in opposition. In some ways, it makes life a little bit easier. Uh, you have a little bit more freedom, I suspect, than you do when you're in uh, government. I've only ever known uh, being an MP in opposition, but uh, I suspect the discipline required in government is much more than it is when you're in opposition. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you can't achieve as much for your constituency and everything else when you're in opposition as well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we had, you know, 2010... Uh, interesting times. It was fascinating to see some of it. We had a coalition government, didn't we? Mm. Uh, Cameron. I thought Cameron were quite impressive as a as a as a prime minister. I'm not agreeing with everything he did or anything by any stretch of the imagination, but he was quite an operator. He wasn't Tony Blair in terms of how, how he operated, but nevertheless, he could hold his own and he had that confidence that people from his background have, uh, and he could certainly you know, do politics and, and, you know, a relatively safe pair of hands in terms of running the country. I think. Mm. And, and so you're in Parliament, you're in opposition, you've got, you know, by your own admission, a sense that this place is quite intimidating. Um, and then this huge controversy lands on your lap. A local matter with a national interest from, in more ways than one, a huge political figure from the past, Cyril Smith. Just talk me through that and what your reaction was when, when this is presented to you. Yeah, well, what, what had happened is that there'd be, you'll remember it, there'd been the uh, Rochdale grooming scandal mm. where uh, young white working class girls had been groomed predominantly by Pakistani Pakistani taxi drivers in and around Rochdale uh, and that blew up as a big story uh, Greater Manchester Police were prosecuting the perpetrators and all the rest of it uh, and and uh, that got a lot of coverage and I contributed to the debate about that and then there was a, there was a parliamentary debate in actual fact on uh, child abuse and, and, th and there have been rumours around Cyril Smith uh, since I'd, I'd arrived in, uh, well before I'd arrived in Rochdale in 2007, there'd been rumours well before that about Cyril Smith and the fact that he abused children. And, and so more evidence came to light around 2012 in this grooming scandal. There was an opportunity to make a, uh, a speech on child abuse. And I thought, and I discussed it in my office, I thought what I've got to do is top and tail this speech off about the Rochdale grooming scandal off about the fact that Cyril Smith had been an abuser. And so that's what I did in the speech. 
And it was on the back of this uh, Jimmy Savile stuff that had already broken by that stage. Uh, the media picked up on the uh, Cyril Smith stuff. Uh, and then many more of his victims got in touch with me uh, on hearing the speech and the coverage that it received. They got in touch with me and, and I met with them at my uh, constituency office. And then, I mean, to fast forward, having listened to many of these victims, Cyril Smith, myself and uh, Matt Baker uh, wrote, uh, wrote the book uh, about Cyril Smith's life and the abuse and many other aspects of his life uh, and, and detailing what sort of person he'd been. And, and, you know, uh, he was, in fact, a paedophile who uh, preyed on young boys. I mean, that's the reality of it. Mm. Uh, by the end of that saga, did you feel any type of Justification is the wrong word because clearly you were right in highlighting some of those horrendous things that had happened that Smith had been involved in. Mm. Or did you equally feel a degree of frustration in that, for me, that ought to have been front and centre of an awful lot of political and wider debate? In much the way the Jimmy Savile stuff was, I mean, you, you've still got people talking about that today. It seemed to me that, for want of a better phrase, the political establishment actually just wanted to bury that as quickly as it possibly could. Yeah, I, I think there's some truth to that. And uh, I think it's a really complex picture, which we keep, as a country, and the media keep returning to on a regular or irregular basis, really, you know, in terms of other, other abusers uh, becoming known. Uh, I don't think there's been a strong appetite to really thoroughly, amongst the political class, to really thoroughly investigate these matters, if we're completely honest about it. There were very few politicians who would actually talk about it uh, in public or in Parliament. There's been a few, there's been one or two, but I mean, you're talking out of 650, not talking uh, very many. We had to drag uh, Theresa May, the Home Secretary at the time, sort of uh, kicking and screaming to set up the independent inquiry into child abuse, which is one of the things I'm particularly proud about having uh, helped establish. Uh, but she wasn't enthusiastic about doing it. She wanted to fix it with a particular chairperson, as opposed to the person we eventually got there, who I think is broadly doing a a good job, but you're right. you're absolutely right. I don't think there's really an appetite to really investigate these matters. Though I will give some credit to Theresa May. She used to ring me up on a Saturday when she was Home Secretary uh, because she wanted to get me on board or keep me on board in terms of the inquiry and all the issues around it uh, and have a conversation with me. And in contrast, the Shadow Home Secretary, uh, Yvette Cooper, never spoke to me once about the whole issue. Uh, at all ever and I found that most peculiar yeah, yeah it's yeah. strange yeah, that is strange uh, well I think it's a measure of the fact that people don't really always want to discuss the topic as well I think that comes into it so there's a with some people there's a reluctance in the political class to address this issue because it's been ignored it's been ignored because they've known it's been going on it's been ignored for so long And but other people just find it so unsavoury which mm -hmm. I can understand as well it's not a, you know it's an awful subject to talk but I think the more light you shine on it the better it is for everybody involved 
And another legacy, I suppose, is that people speak much more freely about this issue uh, than they did, say, six, seven, eight, nine years ago. And I think that's a real positive for you know, British society. Alternatively, you then you raise awareness of these sort of issues and the genuine victims, quite rightly, feel more robust in terms of attitude and more confident coming forward. But then you get, inevitably, I suppose, a chancer who decides, well, this is an opportunity for me to make a bit of a name for myself. And then, I mean, I've been accused of some things at my time, Simon, and I know you have, but bloody hell, you know, that must be the worst. I can't think of anything worse as an accusation. Uh, and and you've you've had that as a bit of a legacy, sadly, as well, haven't you? Yeah, where false ag- accusations have been made, and there's this Nick character who's mm. subsequently been prosecuted for uh, successfully prosecuted for for lying about uh, abuse that uh, he he alleged he had suffered, which clearly uh, presumably hadn't. Uh, and I mean, to say it muddies the waters is a, is a, an understatement. It certainly makes it more difficult for genuine victims or survivors to be able to come forward. It is difficult, though, because I think the media and society, it's either or, and these things are very complex, as always. Uh, And my office, uh, Nick, this this character who called himself Nick, uh, contacted my office, and uh, Matt Baker actually had a conversation with him, and we were wholly unconvinced. Uh, I'm going back four or five years, you know, at the height of all this issue, and we were wholly unconvinced about what he was saying to us so ignored him, we didn't take any part in engaging with him in actual fact. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it makes it makes the situation difficult. Uh, but you shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The reality is that there are lots of uh, children out there who get abused, mm-hmm. and uh, and we have to do all we can to try and ensure that you know that is as re- much reduced as it possibly can be, and the perpetrators are prosecuted. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that was without doubt biggest thing that you were involved in and as you say you know legacy wise you've got an awful lot you can look back on there Simon and be proud of in terms of an achievement I'm not necessarily convinced it did your political career any favours no I think well you know in some respects I regret having got embroiled in the subject because you know unlike some MPs I'm not from a social work background or anything like that Uh, and psychology isn't my area of interest either and so meeting the victims speaking to hearing about some of the abuse that was meted out by paedophiles and things really it caused me to have a you know we would have called it uh, once upon a time a nervous breakdown but I certainly had some sort of you know uh, mental breakdown uh, not only that but it also I think made me a tar and I'm not some big conspiracy theorist at all but I think it put me in the sites for you know uh, for people who don't want these sort of issues to be drenched up uh, dragged up uh so yeah no i in some respects i regret ever having got embroiled in the whole subject and although i think you know i i and my office the our office uh managed to achieve some things uh, it might have been better left alone from my perspective or let somebody else do it but uh, you live with these things yeah but that's an interesting aspect of parliamentary life as well, I think, because 
we increasingly put MPs in the spotlight now. Social media adds to that pressure. Um, in every other aspect of society, we're talking positively about managing wellness, mental health, support structures in the workplace. What's Parliament like for that sort of thing? I think that's a fascinating question. I've been giving that some thought, actually, uh, in recent times. I think uh, I think it's made some progress, but I don't think it's made very much from, you know, speaking to parliamentarians from years gone by, I don't think it's made much progress. When, when I started having a breakdown, which I clearly did, uh, so the positive aspect to, to Parliament now is that the Speaker, uh, this is true, sanctioned for, for Parliament to pay for me to go see a psychiatrist. Uh, and that's a positive, but it was very short-lived and uh, it was quite cumbersome in terms of be, being able to access that help. Uh, so I think Parliament needs to move so much further forward in terms of uh, mental health issues for parliamentarians, really. And a number of parliamentarians have spoken out, which I think is good. Kevin Jones and uh, Jonathan Woodcock have spoken about it. I think that's helpful. But I don't think the safety net's in. And I don't think the political parties do very much, actually. They must surely have a duty of care to parliamentarians who they rely upon uh, to get elected and then to, you know, uh, try and gain power and influence uh, policy, etc., and legislate. Uh, but I think political parties, and I think Labour's pretty poor at uh, considering people's mental health, uh, elected, uh, elected officials' mental health. So I think, I think a lot more could be done on that. And, you know, you described that you had a, a nervous breakdown as being, you know, very candid in, in that description. How did that manifest itself? What impact did that then start to have on your career, as I say, but your life generally? Yeah, well, I was certainly making a whole range of mistakes in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of how you go about doing life. Uh, but, I, you know, I was suicidal, there's no doubt about I remember, you know, I distinctly remember just lying there. I think I've suffered from bouts of depression throughout my life, you know, and and now I, I've come to terms with that and I, I, I'm pretty good at dealing, you know, I think I'm very good at dealing with it and coping with it and all the rest and it doesn't have a big impact uh, now. Uh, but when I had this breakdown, I remember on a regular kit, I just couldn't get out of bed. And so you would lie there, I, I, I would lie there on the bed and just couldn't move. And I wasn't tired, I just didn't want to move. Uh, you know, that's the whole thing about uh, suicide going through your mind. I mean, it's a pretty awful place to be in. Uh, and it's took quite a long time to come through and, and get through. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's how it manifested itself, uh, basically. And I, there's many other people suffer from these issues, so I'm not sympathy or anything but it was a very, very tough time mm. and with that lack of infrastructure and support um, and you know I've seen that as well I've experienced um, colleagues going through similar situations and it's always struck me that the support mechanisms just weren't in place um, but often you know, somehow, by hook or by crook, they'll come through it. Mm. And, you know, as somebody who sort of knew you but wasn't close to you, mm. 
you know, because we, we hadn't spoke for a long time. I'm watching this from afar and I'm thinking, bloody hell, Simon, this is a car crash, lad. What are you doing? Yeah. I'm not close enough to you at that point to pick the phone up and say, can we go and have a pint? But I'm watching this unravel. And, you know, I know you're a bright guy. I know what your politics are. You're not a bloody lunatic either way. Yeah. And I'm seeing all this stuff in the press and I'm thinking, wow, what the hell's going on? And, of course, that then subsequently, does mean that the Labour Party fall out with you, don't they? So how did that come about? And, and what was what was sort of what was the the mechanism process that that happened then? Yeah, and uh, I, well, I mean it's complicated, isn't it? But uh, you know, I effectively, as a BBC journalist said afterwards, imploded, uh, and to add to the difficulties. I was very critical of the leadership of the party. Uh, for Stead Miller, now, now you can say, well, you were right to be critical. Or some people might say you were right to be critical, and I think I was, except, you know, you know as well as I do, you know, playing politics smartly means uh, keeping your mouth shut sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> you know, as opposed to throwing yourself under the bus. As Neither of us have ever been good at that. <laughs> no, no, exactly. And so, uh, and then when uh, Jeremy Corbyn became leader, uh, well, that was it for me, I thought, you know, and because my politics by that stage, by this stage, are clearly not on the left, and certainly not where Jeremy is. Uh, so I were even more vocal. And I were writing for the uh, Sunday papers uh, about uh, Labour politics. That didn't do me any good at all. Uh, I'd had a very difficult personal life. Uh, and the party, uh, when a snapper gen uh, general election was called, uh, saw the opportunity to get rid of me and didn't give me the chance to stand uh, in that general election. Uh, so so, as a, so I stood as an independent and, and lost miserably, as you often do in these instances, you know. But, uh, but in, some relief, in some ways, it was a relief to get out of this, you know. I think, uh, one, I'd achieved what I wanted to achieve from being 15. I got into Parliament. I'd you know, this is a summary, really, but I found out it wasn't really for me. And I'd achieved one or two things along the way. I'd had a nervous breakdown as part of that, and then I'd come out the other end, and I've just about managed to survive, you know, and I can laugh about it now. But uh, what a journey. You know, yeah. Goodness me. Did you feel emotionally hurt by what the Labour Party did to you? Mm, that's an interesting question, actually. I'll tell you what it does do, just first and foremost is it takes away that whole network of friends that you have. Uh, I mean, you know, people... You know, so in Rochdale, I had a very strong network of Labour colleagues and friends uh, who we were very close to. There was never any suggestion that the local party, there were one or two uh, difficult people, as you always get, but the vast majority of the leadership of the local Labour council and all the rest of it, we were at one, very supportive. And then, you know, and then that's taken away. So that would, for somebody who had been having difficulties anyway in terms of mental health, to then lose your network of uh, Labour friends uh, by not being in the party uh, makes it more makes it quite difficult. Uh, I think they didn't do right by me. I'm completely convinced of that. But having said that, I didn't do myself any favours either because, as, as we just spoke about, you've got to play politics sometimes and you know keep your mouth shut and do the right thing, or not always the right thing, but do the thing that. Ensures that you can continue to survive uh, and 
and adding to it to do that in the Labour Party. So, yeah. I asked the question because it's one I'm often asked. Um, because obviously yes. I have my own uh, little drama, which mm. doesn't compare to yours, I, I have to confess. But nonetheless, it led to my political career, such as it was, um, crashing and burning very quickly. And people still today are amazed that I'm a car carrier member of the party and I've, uh, I've maintained that sort of allegiance. And I think it is an emotional attachment. I think it has become a bit tribal. It's almost like your football team. Yeah. Um, but just as you could be critical of the leadership yeah. and I can be critical of Everton centre-forward if he's having a bad game, you know, my view now is, yeah, I... I've got that emotional attachment, yeah. but I'm in no agreement with virtually 90% yeah. of what the leadership's up to, but it's those core values of the party, I suppose, I stick by. But equally, if I look back and I reflect on the party's reaction to the drama that I went through, it was almost non-existent. Yeah, and but in, in your case, I mean, with, with myself, I, you know, it's fair to say that I brought some of it on myself, you know, and I, I never deny that. Uh, but in your case, you didn't bring any of it on yourself, <laughs> you, know, you, you know, and so it was done to you completely and the party didn't support you when it should have done. And I think political parties, I mean, I've only ever been in the Labour Party, but I presume they, they have some similarities across political parties. Uh, but the Labour Party, when it's good and it's its best, it can be fantastic, can't it? It can be a great thing in which to be part of you know, and you and I have had great conferences and great canvassing sessions and all the rest of it and, you know, some real comradeship. But when it's at its worst, uh, you know, in your case and in, in my case, it can be really quite bad, actually. Mm. Uh, but you should have more regret about how the party's treated you than perhaps I have in some respects. You haven't done anything wrong at all. And your political career were brought to an abrupt end. Uh, and the party... Had no qualms about doing that, <laughs> did they really? No, I think what comforts me to an extent. Mm. Firstly, I think they did me a massive favour, <laughs> um, because having spent seven years as a parliamentary assistant, my appetite actually for Westminster had diminished quite significantly just from that row, because I was looking at MPs and I was thinking, Jesus Christ, that is not a good job to have. And I was looking at the top table thinking, well, if I was at cabinet level, fine. But anything beyond that, you really are, for me, struggling. And as somebody who'd been involved at a very high level at regional politics, yeah. you know, we had big influence, didn't we? As yeah. you know, you yeah. know, regional assembly, county yeah. council was a big player at the yeah. time. So the idea of going to parliament had already been turned off. Yeah. The opportunity of having a, a regional assembly was fast diminishing mm. so what would I have you know had that not happened to me Simon the last thing I'd have thought to do was going into business and what I would say about the party and about my involvement in politics and I think you could say exactly the same is that that involvement and that experience has then given you an opportunity to refresh your life and build something new because I st I'm still using people from my political network for 20, 30 yeah. years ago. And I, I'm sure you do now in your new role. Yeah. Yeah. And you're exactly right. And the knowledge and understanding that you gain through politics mm. 
it's phenomenal really i'd started off not dissimilar to yourself in local government finding out how that worked that was really helpful in terms of the first business i was involved in vision 21 which we've talked about uh that stood me in good stead majority of our clients were in local government when we set the business up uh, and then to gain an understanding of how westminster works uh, again as, as, as we rightly say uh, helps so much in terms of uh, business support and understanding how business should engage with politics you know and you've still got some good colleagues from your oh, parliamentary days yeah, and again yeah. like me um and i think this is i hope this is more to do with our um social abilities um but i i'm again i'm a great believer that you can have a, a political round a political difference with someone you don't have to hate them no absolutely. and actually i think that's one of the problems we've got in our politics today you know it's so black and white but you talk to conservative mps conservative lords i speak to conservative party leaders at local government level i'll speak to people who are in the government i might not agree with anything and everything they do but that doesn't mean you, you can't have a civil conversation and a pint with them, does it? I completely agree with that, actually. And I think that's where politics has fallen down a little bit in recent times, where it really is back to that us and them sort of attitude. And, and, and the aggressiveness around it, I think, is exceptionally unhealthy. Uh, you know, the, you're exactly right. Some Conservative MPs, even Lib Dem uh, politicians, for that matter, who, who really make a great, fantastic contribution uh, to policy and and are great to spend social time with as well. And I think we should all just relax a bit uh, uh, and acknowledge and accept that. I think politics would be, and society would be a better place for it. And isn't that what democracy is about? Giving people an opportunity to express different views without wanting to kill them? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Britain's been so good at this over the years. You know, I, I hope we're not going down a road that we will regret where it becomes so aggressive violent is too strong at this stage but nevertheless uh, i hope that that road on which I we are setting off down i hope it doesn't continue so that does bring us nicely round to the uh, political environment that we're operating at this moment in time which i think um anyone would say is is turbulent at the very least um there does seem to be a, an absolute chasm now between you know, the, the government the opposition parties but perhaps more worrying you touched upon this the general public you know doesn't appear to be any coalescing about any consensus does there these days no no you're you're absolutely right i think uh, i think politics as we knew it is really broken down i think things have really changed quite uh, dramatically in recent times uh, and it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens at the next general election. I think it's so hard to predict. Uh, you know, we'll, uh, I, and I, myself included, I don't know. I, I'm not sure how I will vote at the next general election, actually. Mm. I think it's quite interesting. I, I don't think I could bring myself to vote for Jeremy Corbyn's party. I think, uh, you know, voting to put him in 10 Downing Street for me would be a step too far. So where do I go? And, you know, considering the politicians I've fought in elections gone by, I can't, I couldn't bring myself to uh, fight the, uh, vote for the Lib Dems. So I'm not sure what I'll do, actually. <laughs> Don't leave me many options. <laughs> SNP, perhaps, as well. <laughs> so, uh, if they stand in London. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, and 
It's an interesting point that you raise, though, isn't it? And probably a dilemma that many people who've traditionally voted Tory or traditionally voted Labour, you know, we, we've talked about living in interesting times. You know, you've got Ken Clark, who was a major player in the Thatcher government, saying this week that he'd support a Jeremy Corbyn prime ministership, albeit temporarily, to stop a no Brexit deal, or a no deal Brexit, sorry. Um, and then you've got people like yourself saying, well, I don't know whether I could vote Labour. And therein lies the problem. We've also now, I suppose, over the past 10 years, really, started to see the emergence of a multi-party system for the first time in a genuine sense in the UK. Yeah. And so whereby people, I think, used to lend the vote at things like local elections, by-elections, even European elections... Mm -hmm. They're far more promiscuous with their voting now, aren't they? They they will look at things and think, well, what's in it for me? Yeah, yeah. And the next step from that, and I've always been somebody who's been in favour of first past the post, and I've campaigned for that. But I do wonder whether we are now at a stage where we need an alternative voting system. Mm. And I think that you know, I think that'll be a serious consideration. I think that's probably a step that we, as a democracy, we now have to take. Mm. And actually. If you look at Parliament in its truest form and you take the two big parties that have dominated the Commons since 1945, the fact of the matter is that we've had coalitions forever, haven't we? Because the Labour Party has always been a coalition of people from the left, people from the centre-left and people from the right coalescing around one particular manifesto, but that's a coalition. And you look at the Tory party now, which is split asunder, really, yeah. and you wonder whether it's going to survive beyond yeah. the Brexit debacle. Um, they've always had the One Nation Tories, and then people used to describe as Thatcherites who we'd now say ERG. Yeah. So perhaps if we introduce the more proportional system, we get a bit more honesty, perhaps, in our yeah. politics. Yeah, and, and we've talked earlier about the aggressive nature of politics at the moment. Perhaps it would bring some comfort to politics if we had a couple more parties. We, we, you mentioned you mentioned a multi-party system, and perhaps that might give some people comfort. You know, the, the, because the current Labour Party isn't a broad church as it used to be. It isn't that coalition of left and right and people in between. It's now very much on the left, and if you don't fit into that, then you can't really be a, a part of the party. And I think that's unhealthy. But perhaps if we move to a multi-party a, a multi system with proportional representation, then that might give people comfort in terms of one voting to belong, belonging to a political party that they really feel something for. Perhaps that's the perhaps that's the solution to some of the problems that we've got at the moment. Mm. I think we're a way off getting voting reform, given where we are. But let me just move on to an issue that I do think is part of the malaise that we've experienced in recent times, and that's leadership. Um, I think you've already said during the conversation you were quite impressed with David Cameron, not so much Ed Miliband. Um, you were obviously very active during Tony Blair's premiership, and again, whatever you think of his politics, I don't think anyone could deny he was a charismatic and effective leader. I look across the Commons now and I don't necessarily see those big political figures that we used to have. Now, is that me just looking back 
through rose-coloured spectacles, thinking, oh, it was, you know, becoming a bit of an old man, aren't I? You know, oh, it was better back in my day. Or have we actually seen a drop in calibre mm. within our political leadership? I do, I mean, there's a number of observations to make there. I think we do have to be careful about uh, getting the sort of politicians, you know, the, the public sort of not ask for, but we, we get we get those politicians that we end up, you know, we cre- they are a creation of ourselves. We get what we deserve. We get what we deserve, <laughs> exactly, I think, in some respects. And, and the condemnation of politicians over a long period of time by the public, by the press, by, by the media, uh, by other politicians as well, fighting each other, I don't think has done uh, political career of being a politician much good and so I do think we've probably ostracised some people who would normally go into politics and perhaps some of those that would have gone into politics or did go into politics in years gone by actively avoid going into politics now and I think politics is worse for that, I think the country is worse for that I I still think there's some big hitters in and around politics but I agree with you, I think uh, there aren't all those you know, big brains like Gordon Brown who are who are Tony Blair, great communicator. I would say Nigel Farage, you know, is a great communicator. You can't take that away from him in terms of what he's achieved, whether you like his politics is a different matter, but he's a, a big hitter, you know. So there are one or two of them uh, still around. Uh, but uh, but I think politics is worse for, for uh, having got the politicians that we deserve. Yeah, that's mm. a good way of putting it. And what do you think of Boris? I, I actually think he's quite impressive. I, I, I mean, I've met him a couple of times, uh, and I think he's a smart politician. You know, I, he's played this buffoon sort of image to an extent, but the reality is he's a smart politician. I actually think he's a one-nation Tory. This idea uh, of painting him as extreme right-wing conservative, I think doesn't wash really with the public. So I think Labour is using that as a tactic uh, one, I don't think it gains them any votes, and two, I don't think it's true. And I think the public see that, so it doesn't do them any advantage at all. Uh, does everything he does and propose, uh, do I like everything he does and propose? No, I don't. But I think he's quite, he is one of the big hitters in British politics at the moment. And where we are at this second in time, he's running rings around the opposition, I have to say. Uh, he hasn't been in the job very long, but he's, he's, you know, he's doing pretty well at it from a you know, leadership perspective. Mm. And your first loyalty was to the Labour Party, and I'm guessing that, you know, instinctively you would want to support the Labour Party. I think, again, as short a period of time as five, six years ago, some of us thought Chukar Amuna was the, uh, the, the, the next big hope, leadership-wise. There was some people rallying around Yvette Cooper's leadership. There were people looking at, even Liz Kendall was on the leadership path, if you remember. I mean, Liz is that far out to the right now that the Labour Party is that you wonder where she'd stand. Any other characters come to mind that you think, you know, once Corbyn's time does come to an end, and listen, that could come as, as soon as the next election if he loses it, where will the Labour Party go, do you think? Well, if if Jeremy Corbyn, you know, doesn't remain leader, I can't imagine uh, a moderate or somebody slightly to the right within the party becoming uh, taking his place. I think he'll be replaced because the membership of the party is that much to the left. Then he'll be replaced by somebody 
you know, in similar form, really. I think you mentioned some good politicians there. I used to be uh, parliamentary private secretary to Chukramunna uh, in years gone by, and he, he started going downhill soon after I stopped doing that <laughs> job for him. But uh, yeah, and now he's joined the flipping Liberal Democrats, so he's lost his way. But I, I think you were a good politician, actually. It was a great motivator from a team perspective. You know, we were in a shadow uh, biz team. And uh, he was, he's pretty good. He's, he's quite uh, impressive. I think uh, Keir Storm is quite impressive as well, actually. Uh, Idi Alexander, who's now gone off to work for the Mayor of London, she was very impressive as Shadow Health Secretary. So we've lost some people. We've lost some good people, you know. But there's still one or two good ones around. John Healy, who's a Shadow Housing Minister, he's very good. Some real competence in politics. These are the people, you don't always see them every day on your TV screen, but do an excellent job in terms of scrutinising and challenging politics for the better, and we need more of that. Mm. So, clearly Parliament's South East system. You've done that, been there, got the T-shirts. Don't sense that there's an appetite for you to go back anytime soon. No, no, that, you're exactly right. No, not in elected office. No, that's for sure. I still enjoy doing politics and following politics and, you know, getting embroiled in some of the debates and arguments, but standing for elected office is something I'm uh, happy to uh, leave alone for a while. Yeah. Well, it's in your blood. You're never going to be totally disengaged from it, are you? But, politics, yeah. Sure. Um, so what's Simon Dan Chuck up to now? Yeah, do, doing uh, business, really. I've been in business before. Uh, I enjoy business. I advise uh, a variety of businesses. So I, I, uh, I have a portfolio of businesses uh, that, I, that I work with uh, and advise, and I really enjoy that. And it gives me a, a real insight into a whole range of different issues. And I can, and I can, I can apply some of, that, uh, some of those skills I learned in politics uh, to real-life business, and I think that's uh, something that I really enjoy. And is there a particular ambition that you have left in your own personal life now, or are you all ambitioned out? Because, you know, again, from the outset of this conversation, it was clear that at a very young age, you had that goal. It's, I want to be an MP, and you achieved that goal. Uh, as you get older, I suppose it gets more difficult to set those targets, but nonetheless, you know, if you're like me, you, it drives you on having, you know, some sort of target objective to hit. Yeah, I have uh, I have challenges in terms of travel, so I enjoy travel. I, I have two young boys who are just nine and eleven, so they're still relatively young. I, I enjoy spending time with them, having neglected them for the first part of their life. So I put a, a lot of store by spending time with them, uh, and and really focus on that side of my life. You know. Uh, that sort of quality part of my life, because I have been very driven, first in business, then in politics, uh, back into business, which I enjoy, but also spending some quality time with family and doing some travelling. That's At the minute, that's what I'm really concentrating on. And yeah. I enjoy that balance. Yeah, yeah. And is there anything in terms of either politics or indeed business where you could see one thing that, if you had the power to do so, you'd change it and you think that would definitely cause a shift for the better. Oh, 
you've sprung that on me, but uh, what I did do some campaigning about, which never gets mentioned, is around high streets and business rates. Mm. And I think the way in which we, uh, as a country, the way in which we deal with those issues, I think would make a big difference. It seems quite pedestrian in terms of answering the question, but I think changing the way in which we tax business on the high street and around, I think would make a big difference to communities and, and to whether pubs close, to whether shops and retailers uh, have a chance to stay open and so on and so forth. So something around that, I think, would be, uh, which I tried for in politics and perhaps not, didn't have as much success, but I think doing something around that would be quite uh, quite nice to see. Brilliant. Simon, thanks for the frank conversation. Thank you. And uh, that was Simon Danchuk, former MP for Rochdale, now business consultant and chairman of Downtown London in Business. Hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. We'll be back with another one very soon.